Welcome to the Owl Hoot Podcast with me, Caroline Norbury. This is a show for any person interested in the environment and sustainability. I arrived at a point in my own life where I wanted to know more about the state of our planet and how I can play my part, albeit small, in mitigating climate change, reducing pollution and supporting biodiversity. I decided that chatting to others who are already doing something might be a good place to start. So each episode will feature a different guest telling their stories in and around an environmental activity that will perhaps provide you with ideas that you can incorporate into your own life. Enjoy listening and let me know if you have a topic you'd like to hear more about on the podcast and I'll do my best to address it. Today, I chat with Nick Milestone, Engineering Director at Signat, a steel components and frames manufacturer within the European construction industry. Nick is tasked with driving their green agenda and innovation towards sustainable solutions. He has a wealth of experience in construction and is a long-standing champion of timber, with previous roles including Managing Director of B&K Structures, the largest mass timber construction business in the UK. He's also the chairman of the Timber Research and Development Trade Association, TRADA, and senior vice president for strategy and partnerships to the Softwood Lumber Board. Within the UK, the construction industry contributes to about 10% of total carbon emissions. So I'm interested in finding out Nick's thoughts on how this can be mitigated. Welcome, Nick, to the podcast. Hi, Caroline. So I always start by getting a bit of background about the person I'm speaking to. So it'd be great to hear about how you got into construction and then how timber became so important within your own work. Okay, so um, my career started uh, being from Hull originally, and my grandfather was a timeserve joiner, which was kind of the irony of the journey. And um, not knowing what I was going to do when I left school, other than going to tech college to do some building a certificate. Uh, I actually, I think my careers advisor suggested I become a draftsman in technical drawings. Um, so I went off to college to do that. And during that process in 86, my granddad, he got me a job as a trainee quantity surveyor for a building and construction company in Hull. And uh, so that kind of started my journey into construction. So I sort of went on that journey from quite a junior trainee, assistant QS to quantity surveyor up till about probably about 93, 94. And then um, I moved journeys to a structural steel company up near Scarborough. Uh, quite a sizable structural steel company and my granddad was actually pretty upset with me I'd left working for a general builder to go and work for a specialist subcontractor but a sizable one and uh, especially within steelwork with his background being in joinery and it was there that I kind of realized the world of off-site construction as we now know as DFMA design for manufacturing assembly we just never recognized structural steelers has been such a value component in that in that space. On that journey, um, I then went into the realms of being a project manager. So I, I got myself a QS degree, I got myself a project management degree, and I mastered in um, project management um, out of choice, just to gather knowledge for myself. And it was on that point in time in about 2002, uh, I moved my family down to Derbyshire to join the Bowman Kirtland Construction Group and, and headed up their steel construction business. And so the, the irony of the journey of 
of my grandfather being a joiner it was probably in about mid 2000s when our clients Tesco, Sainsbury's and Marks and Spencer's decided they want to build low carbon construction uh, retail stores or effectively glue lamp frames from structural steel frames. So I was absolutely curious about this and, and committed to the big retailers that we could build them. And it was an amazing journey of a stepping outside of the boundaries of the UK to Europe to see what Central Europe was up to. And it just opened my eyes to this whole versus cost versus carbon journey and starting to realize how impactful it was using mass engineered timber in a structural form. And so I tried to sort of bring that technologies over to the UK construction market, met with great resistance because cost was very prohibitive. So therefore uh, we developed the hybrid model. We engineered this sort of structural steel slash mass engineered timber hybrid model. And that kind of worked for the UK market. Uh, it was it was reducing cost, but without completely sort of negating this whole, whole sort of negative carbon journey uh, using materials from sustainable sources, legal and sustainable sources that was PEFC or FSC certified. We were actually able to demonstrate that the structural frames we were building were actually carbon negative. We were taking advantage of the carbon sequestration or wood is a carbon sink. And it was starting to realize then that we were building actually what's right for the planet. And in that journey, um, Europe was developing in the early 2000s, uh, a material called cross laminated timber, which was almost uh, like precast concrete slabs, but in solid wood. That allowed us to engineer the capability to start building residential towers up to about nine stories and that's when you start to realize how impactful you are when you're starting to compete with concrete. Now, concrete is by far the most offensive carbon uh, intensive material there is. So I mean, nearly 8% of, of uh, emissions come from concrete. And we were completely offsetting that. But then we started to find the other impacts. It was quicker, it was lighter, it was great for highly urbanized environments, especially in central London. And that journey got me involved with being involved in the Structural Timber Association, TRADA especially. And then we felt through TRADA, uh, we could then start putting really good publications in the public domain to prove the cost benefits, the speed benefits of working with mass engineered timber. And um, and it was just such an amazing journey. And it took us on a journey that started opening up the realms of biophilia. Biophilia is our human, our human nature and our, our contact with nature itself. What it brings back to us in terms of the hydrophobic capabilities of the material allows us to be less stressful, more productive working in timber buildings. And the whole journey was amazing. No less to say, I started doing lots of uh, speeches around the planet from far west US to far eastern Australia and I had a, a crazy notion four or five years ago to move to Singapore where the whole journey was starting to take place and it was great working with the Singapore government to promote the use of mass engineered timber and and other off-site technologies really to compete against a very dominant construction material called concrete in Southeast Asia 
And it was a great journey. And to this day, even now, Singapore demonstrates its use of building the world's largest mass timber construction building, the Nanyang Technical University in Singapore. So that journey uh, then brought me back to the UK, working and developing with a structural steel business, the use of light gauge structural steel frames. Now, how that was more interesting than just pure timber was the fact that sadly we had the Grenfell tragedy in uh, 2017. It was an awful tragedy where effectively the cladding and insulation materials were combustible and uh, you know cost 80 plus lives. That meant a huge change in our building regulations which meant we couldn't build uh, accommodation buildings using combustible materials in the external walls which effectively meant we couldn't build with CLT anymore, which was actually the wrong thing. We shouldn't have, you know, addressed our building regulations, but unfortunately it's about perception, it's about fire, it's about insurance. So what filled the place of cross-laminated timber residential towers was light gauge load-bearing steel. And I saw a niche opportunity similar to BK Structures where we integrated structural steel frames with cross-laminated timber floor decks to uh, light gauge load bearing steel frames that can go up to 15 stories, but using CRT. And so I set the business model up for a UK engineering company, a structural steel work. And, uh, and then I got enticed to move to America where the exact same market was happening. Uh, they call it CFS CLT hybrid construction. So, and then I, I, I moved to America very briefly, COVID got in the way of it all. I'm now back in UK, so I decided to position myself inside the UK's largest light gauge uh, prefabrication business and effectively add to their green agenda by implementing CLT into the light gauge load bearing space. So basically the walls would be made of light gauge steel and the floors would be made of uh, cross laminated timber. So effectively, the um, carbon or the net carbon that's in the floors would completely offset the uh, steelwork in the walls, making them a carbon net zero construction. So it's, it's been about being very passionate about climate change, changing the planet, change our behaviors, but equally you've got to understand the economies of scale in terms of people vote with their purse and therefore cost is king and therefore you have to adapt the use of timber components which you know has been kicking around since the roman times is the oldest material in construction and we're just adapting it to modern techniques now that modern techniques takes account of what we call vdc virtual design and construction the bim models the building information model off-site manufacturing, so everything that goes to site, whether it's a light gauge wall, structural steel beam, or, or cross-laminated timber coming from Austria, is all manufactured to zero waste as well. So nothing's wasted. And we're doing these carbon net zero buildings. And, and equally, it's recognizing what the market demands are. And the market demands, especially for the UK market, right now is the residential space. You know, COVID has changed the dynamics. There's been a reduction in office buildings because there's this new hybrid home working. Therefore, people are more adaptable to want to spend more time at home. Therefore, it increases the residential market. So it's all about a mixture of economy, 
policies and 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 doing what's right socially as well for the environment and uh, creating jobs because whether we liked it or not brexit was very impactful on the labor markets in the uk especially in construction so a lot of the labor markets migrated back to central europe which left huge pressures on our site construction labor and therefore there's a big drive by uk gov to create off-site assembly hubs. So effectively construction is going to what is close to car manufacturing plants. So now we're going to a lot more off-site construction. So if you like, it's a really good roadmap of DFMA, uh, Design for Manufacturing Assembly Off-Site, VDC, Virtual Construction, because technology allows that, and the, uh, the building physics embracing green and sustainable technologies. So, and, and, and of course, construction procurements moving to more vertical integration, whereby supply chains are much, much more integrated and in control of their cost and delivery. So it's really, it's a force of everything that comes in at the same time. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite blessed with my work I do with Trader and the US Softwood Lumber Board. Uh, I'm involved with COP26 coming up in the UK this year. And obviously for me, the low hanging fruit of climate change is to build with more timber or mass engineered timber, you know, which is certainly a mature market now across Europe. So that's kind of where my life journey kind of started and how I got here today, spanning 35 years. That's a great overview of your own personal path, along with all the different dynamics that are involved in construction, as you quite rightly yeah. say, the economics, the, the supply and demand, the business, the individual requirements. I was interested in particular that the initial demand came from supermarkets. Is that because in the UK we were perhaps behind other countries that were pushing business demand in the timber direction? What, what started those retailers to become interested in being low carbon? So that journey kind of happened concurrently amongst uh, Tesco, Sainsbury's, and especially Marks and Spencer's. Marks and Spencer's, if you remember, they had the plan A, because there's no plan B. And it was the start of the journey of, especially with Tesco's, how their corporate and social responsibilities was reacting to a reduction in carbon, carbon across their supply chain. Now, carbon in construction, it takes two journeys. One is in the physical building of the asset and how much carbon we use. And the second carbon is how much carbon is used during the lifetime of the assets operational use. Similar to your house, the carbon used to build it and the carbon you, you have to consume to operate your house. So the retailers effectively address some serious issues on corporate and social responsibility. And uh, it, it created a huge demand for these uh, low carbon construction stores. So it wasn't just about the structural frame, it was about the frame and envelope where we were doing the roof and wall panels and to, to build them to what we call passive house standards. Passive house standards is about reducing your early leakage. So similar with your own home, if you've got gaps between your windows and your brickwork and you have early leakage, you feel the cold, what do you do? You ramp up your heating, which consumes more energy. And the retailers were very much thinking in that space, not just from 
low carbon in operation, but as a business case, reducing the amount of physical energy that they use as well. And, and what we created post air tightness te uh, tests and post occupancy evaluation was these buildings were actually keeping cooler in the summer and warmer in the winter with very much little heating. In fact, they had to derate some of their plants and mechanical use, which prove that we can, with a bit of forethinking, reduce the carbon during construction, but the energy consumption during the operational use of the building. So, and, 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 and like I mentioned earlier, you know, having three university degrees was just my uh, nature for wanting to know knowledge. And so my journey going through and working with the retailers, we took on so much knowledge and we were probably slightly ahead of what is now deemed as the norm today. So at the time we worked with Edinburgh University to develop our own carbon footprints okay. of cradle to frame. Now that's the norm. You go on the iStruct website and you can download a carbon calculator. You can put in the amount of steel, concrete, timber and aluminium glass, and it will, it will generate a carbon footprint. And that shows the energy rating of a building. So pretty much like when you buy a fridge now or a freezer yeah. or a TV, it's got an energy rating on. We're finally getting to that place where we're now putting energy ratings on buildings that we construct. I mean, it, 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 you know, whilst trying to be a pioneering and, and pioneering across the planet, it's still a huge change in behavior. You know, if you look at, at India and China specifically, the, you know, the adoption of, of developing countries, although China is quite an advanced country, is the fact they will default to lowest cost and lowest cost is concrete and cheap labor. So it's a huge behavioral change. You know, we've had the impact of say like Brexit where we can't be reliant on cheap labor anymore. We have to think a little more smart and be less wasteful and reduce our carbon. So the whole sort of, it's becoming more business sense in reducing our carbon is actually making our business models far, far more efficient in use. It does help when you have an abundance of resource. And sadly here in the UK, we don't have an abundance of resource of natural timber. It, it all comes from, as we know, Scandinavia, or it comes from Central Europe, but then they have the, the forests and the forest to replenish. And the reason why I, I, I'm so passionate about using timber in construction is because timber is the ultimate carbon sink. So, and this is where the retailers came in. They recognize the fact that um, if you fell a tree that's harvested for construction from legal and sustainable sources, which 75% or 80% of Europe's forests are legal and sustainable, effectively a tree in its infancy from a sapling up to say 40 years will consume two and a half times more carbon out the atmosphere. Whereas a mature tree, well, it starts to reduce the amount of carbon it takes out the atmosphere. So it's actually good to fell a tree and harvest it for construction, which you're creating that carbon sink. So the retailers recognize this whole journey that actually using timber in construction is good. And the amount of timber that's been replenished, especially in Central Europe, is phenomenal. We will never uh, outgrow supply. Whereas concrete and steel, we physically have to dig out the ground and we don't replace it. We try to recycle it, but there's still a high energy intensity in trying to recycle it. And it's the whole carbon journey, and that's what the retailers recognize. But they started a journey 
which uh, has has been a catalyst for for a lot more. So I can we, we so Tesco, Sainsbury's, and and Asda and and MS, we have to be thankful because they actually created this journey. And, and you need big stakeholders. You need your Googles, your Amazons. You need big names to put their weight behind it in order to create the traction and the demand. Coming back to that point about there being sufficient timber for demand, obviously it sounds like demand is still going to continue to increase for timber. You don't ever see uh, there being a problem with the amount of timber available to be, you know, re replanting trees that are re replacing those that have been logged for timber production. That doesn't seem to be no. an issue. And the, I mean, it, it's a bit of a myth. We think, you know, stripping trees down is bad for the ecosystem. And in certain parts of the world, definitely, uh, especially in developing countries uh, where there is still a lot of illegal logging going on. The, the Amazon springs to mind straight away. That's where it is pretty bad for the ecosystem. Whereas, and I'll always default back to Europe and North America, whereby uh, supply is about two and a half times current of that of demand. So there's no real uh, worry about running out of timber on the planet, far from it. The more timber we use, the more that we will replant, which is better for regressing climate change. So long as the um, natural woodlands and the forests are certified to an FSC or a PEFC standard, which you see when you go to the um, B&Q and you'll see an FSC or a PEFC logo, that means you're actually buying materials from legal and sustainable sources, which is good, which shows that you know, what you're buying has got legitimacy and you know the forests are being replanted. It's, you know, there's always controversy like Brazilian plywood you know, it's always, you know, don't buy Brazilian plywood. I'm, I'm, I'm not advocating you don't buy Brazilian plywood, but at the time it was a big issue because of the damage it was doing to the Amazon and to the, and to the ecosystem. You know, the ecosystem is so important to the planet and um, we can do good with this. We can do good. And what about, again, going back to the actual production of timber, there's obviously this huge quantity in Europe and North America. What stops other countries like the UK or other parts of the world aforesting and growing trees for timber production? Is, is, there, yeah. is there anything that's stopping that? No, it's an education process. And now I'm starting to see that. So some friends of mine, uh, BuildX Studio in Kenya, uh, want to build social housing in mass engineered timber and not using concrete. And it's a great story. They want to use more locally sourced timber, which is eucalyptus, which is great. It's a natural species, perfect for it. But the forests, you know, they, they can't get it from local in Kenya just yet. They have to look at Tanzania and Uganda or South African timber because they will only source material that is from either FSC or PFC sources. And, and it's just a process of engagement. And one of the big things that's coming out of COP26 this year is whilst softwoods, spruce, pine, fir, larch, which we're all familiar with, is very much regulated from sustainable forestry. It's in places like Malaysia, more like Indonesia is a good example, where you've got a lot of tropical hardwoods and it's pretty much unregulated. But now it's a process of education to turn um, those forests into efficient economies, effectively where it's been felled for paper, pulp, construction, furniture, everything else. 
but at the same time then forests are being replenished. I think if there's a blocker, it's education more than anything. But I think, you know, the message I would put out to the wider audience is, you know, make sure that what you buy has either got an FSC or a PEFC badge on it, and then you are doing right by the planet. That's mm. that's probably the key message. It's more the developing countries in South America, uh, Southeast Asia and Africa, whereby that process of change is actually happening and it's happening right now um, okay. because I think everybody's waking up to the fact we have to regress climate change. We have to use less energy on the planet. And presumably locally sourced timber is going to be a benefit from a transport and energy perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and you're, you're right. Um, so, I mean, we do have forests here in Wales and in Scotland, whilst um, supply is relatively low. And it's still cheaper to come in from Central Europe as well. So there is the economies there. Yes, we do. We do grow. And we are, um, we are, uh, we have legitimacy here in our woodlands. Unfortunately, we just don't have the abundance blessed in Europe. And, you know, the trees, uh, 2000 meters in the Alps, you know, are good trees for engineered timber especially so um but europe is 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 a great service to the globe right now definitely scandinavian european and then probably in the next 10 years we'll see a lot more in north america canadian and american timber because they're lush with their for their own forests okay so we've we've talked about where the timber comes from and the, the fact that certification is very important and then when you're using the timber in your construction, then you're locking this carbon away. What about the other end? Do you have any involvement with if a, uh, a building that is no longer required or is going to be taken down contains wood? What What is the requirement for then it, that locked away carbon to be dispensed with appropriately? Yeah. So, I mean, now we're addressing uh, two issues. Uh, we've got life cycle assessments of the building so great, we can identify carbon in construction, carbon in use, fantastic. But now we've got this end of life use. What do we do with that timber? Um, so now we're in the realms of the circular economy. You know, there's a big focus on the circular economy. And it's not just about timber, it's about steel and concrete. It's the ability to reuse and recycle. So the way we design our buildings are very much to be unbolted and unscrewed. So therefore we can reuse those materials. That's the primary focus. These buildings are all designed, especially in a pre-engineered building to be deconstructed that they can go back to being flat pack again. You know, unlike concrete, I'm sad to say, is very much, you know, it's demolished, it's broken down. What do we do with the aggregate? Well, it, it, it is actually reused, you know, in, in you know, foundations and roads and everything else, but with timber, but it's a very, very early journey in timber um, because these buildings have been up for less than 15 years, 20 years now, since mass engineered timber really hit the scene in the UK market. And don't forget the, the oldest blue laminated timber structure in the UK dates back to, I think, 1865, which is the registry off in Southampton. There's a good chance these buildings, whilst they are in designed and warranted for maybe up to 60 years, the chances are these buildings will be around for a few hundred years. So ask me in 200 years, Caroline, <laughs> and I'll be able to give you a more accurate assessment. But the intention is to recycle and reuse in yeah. the uh, circular economy. Excellent. 
coming back to another point you made earlier about the building regs. So that it sounds from what you're saying that actually we could potentially use more timber in, in construction, but you're hindered by the building regs. Is that the same in other countries across the world uh, as no. to how much? Right. No. So um, if I was to benchmark some great work that's going across the planet, so, um, and this is all pre-Grenfell, but hasn't changed policy or demand. If you look at Australia, they designed their building codes to put buildings up to um, 24 metres uh, in height, knocking um, on the path of up to 30 metres as well, which means effectively they can comfortably go up to 10 storeys, if not taller but they put in provisions of sprinkler systems to de-risk in the event of a fire. And, and these timber buildings are built, you know, in excess of two hours to stand up and encapsulated. So pretty much, yeah, these, it, it's very much fire engineered out and durability issues are assessed. So Australia has certainly led the way with their building regulations. North America has just adapted its IBC codes to go from six stories uh, up until uh, 18 stories and designed up to two and three hours because you just thicken up the wood. If you imagine, you know, a fire pit in your garden and you put some kindling on it, it goes. If you put a log on it, it will go for hours because effectively it's mass versus surface area and therefore it chars and protects itself and creates that layer of carbon around it. So North America is actually being very progressive. Um, and the reason why they've been very progressive was down to the uh, Obama administration where they changed the Mass Timber Act in the United States because that actually encourages uh, forestry growth, harvesting, harvesting for construction. It's good for the local economy. So very much uh, America's gone progressive, Australia's gone progressive, France especially uh, with the upcoming Olympic Games in 2024 the mayor of France decreed that 50% of all new build construction will be in timber because he's an ecologist and he believes it's right by climate change, especially with the Paris Accord. It very much fell in line with the ambition. And then, of course, uh, the rest of France has rolled out a 2035 building program that by 2035, on, or 50% of all new build will be in timber construction because it's about the carbon journey. So uh, all the countries have gone progressive. Sadly, we were regressive mm -hmm. because of the knee-jerk reaction to Grenfell. Timber had nothing to do with Grenfell. You know, that was a, 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 an insulation and a cladding issue on a concrete frame. Timber was far removed from it. But we, we just seemed to knee-jerk this reaction and, and interpret the building regulations. And it's all about interpretation of the building regulations, the use of combustible materials in the external walls, which was addressing the whole cladding and insulation arguments. However, the, you know, the concrete society said, well, you can't use timber then, you can't use mass engineered timber in the external walls. So the project I'm working on right now for SIGMAT is to say, okay, we'll use light gauge load bearing steel walls, you know, designed up to 60, 90, 120 minutes but guess what, we'll put CLT back in the floor construction, which is a really good mix of hybrid. So that's, that's a means of, of addressing the building regulations. At the end of the day, the building regulations are there. We, we, we can't fight against them. We have to work with them. We have to accept them. And but it's all about perception as well. And as other countries and continents 
uh, are relaxing. Does that have any impact on policy change? I guess because it's it's not that long since policy has been changed. How quickly do these things alter again when it's seen that actually this is better for the environment? And obviously that's something that every, everybody wants to progress. Yeah, so the policy changes that came about in Australia and North America has purely been down to testing. Mm-hmm. And the Europeans has been down to testing. And uh, we haven't done, we have not done as yet sufficient testing in the UK. That testing is going on and is happening right now and uh, should be complete within the next six months. And that will then change the perception because, believe it or not, a lot of insurers are actually welcoming the use of mass engineered timber because A, they recognize that clients want it, you know, clients do want it in their construction. Uh, for a number of reasons, speed of construction and uh, the carbon story as well, and the reduction in carbon and energy in, in energy use in, in its lifetime. So the insurance industry is probably that once we get the testing complete and the insurers are satisfied, that will then adapt to policy as well. So, it, it, but unfortunately, these things just don't happen overnight. Yeah. You know, these things can take two, three years sure. before it's effective. Going back to something else you said earlier, you said you're involved in COP26. How did that come about and uh, what do you hope will come out of it? Okay, so COP26, uh, just so you can appreciate, is is split into two zones. You've got the blue zone, which is very much where the politicians and the policymakers and the lawmakers will be going to. So they will listen, debate and go back and create policy for their own country because it is an international forum. Um, the green zone is about policymakers and trade. It's about what the world's offering. How I got involved in COP26, yes, I'm very blessed to be the chairman of TRADA. So that puts me in a position of where I can be on committees and create influence. Working alongside the TTF, we've just recently created Timber Development UK, which is very much focused on COP26. And it's about having the chance to create manifestos you know manifestos that's good and right for the planet and one thing the uk is above anything else we are very much focused on climate change here and despite you know the sort of the slight regression of the use of mass timber but that will right itself mm-hmm. we are very much committed to climate change here in the uk uh, for example the government is giving great subsidies toward you know the wind farms the use of electric vehicles the electric points you know we're very much going down that route the government offers um, a lot of grants to homeowners to adapt their houses to be more energy efficient so the whole premise of cop 26 is and i think it's right that the uk hosts it is because the uk is leading the way and uh, i'm in a position where i can offer influence in that space as well and putting aside any sort of personal commercial agendas it's about doing right by this planet as well because at the end of the day if we don't you know we've got to create a legacy for our generations to pick this up um because we've only got one shot at saving this planet we really have for sure that leads me perfectly into the last two questions nick the first of which is if you were to recommend to the person that's listening to the the episode uh, one recommendation or many recommendations at that point, what, what would you advise or suggest that they could take either in their own lives or just in within the timber sphere? 
I would look at your own carbon footprint. We're starting to look at that, at what we eat and starting to look at the carbon footprint from where it comes from. We're becoming a lot more informed through TV now about what's going on on the planet. You know, dispose of your waste correctly, recycle as much as you can, but look at your own home and your car and your lifestyle and ways of reducing your own carbon. Is there anything you can do in your house? You know, a bit extreme, but change a gas boiler to an electric boiler. You know, maybe look at solar panels, maybe, you know, having more insulation. You know, having trying to look at ways of just reducing your own carbon footprint. I think the use of electric vehicles is being forced on us regardless. That will change our behaviour and a lot more people will start to drive toward hybrid, you know, uh, electric vehicles. So we are going to be changing our behaviours, but look, just look at our own carbon footprint and look at our homes, our housing. I've had a huge change. COVID, you know, I'm a person who goes a lot around the planet and I take a lot of flights and that's not good. I've been at home now, working from home for in excess of 12 months. A, I've thoroughly enjoyed seeing my family, uh, which was a blessing. But more importantly is I reduced my own carbon footprint considerably. And I look now, uh, rather than going to the office every day up into Leeds, I do one or two days a week working from home. AI can be as productive, but secondly, you know, I've just saved some energy used. Some little bits. If we all did those little bits, what a huge impact we would have in reducing our car. We're just reducing your energy consumption. That's that's great advice. Lastly, then, Nick, 2050 is not that far away, under 30 years. How do you see the world looking in 2050? Gosh, we will definitely have more megacities on the planet. That's for sure. I think uh, I'm closely attached to an organisation called the CTBUH, the Council for Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat. And their forecasts up to 2050, ironically, is about the densification living in city centres, where the next generations will naturally migrate from urban sprawl back to the cities for a work-life balance of office, home and leisure time combined into one. That will put huge pressure and there will be more construction, definitely. We're seeing it in China, where a New York city is going to be built every single year, you know, in China. These megacities, the huge megacity that's coming up in Saudi Arabia, the Neon project, you know, which is nothing short of a half a trillion dollar investment on infrastructure and 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 living and and, and ironically, I those guys got in touch with me because one thing they are looking at is doing more off-site for speed, but they want to put more timber into their construction because they want to reduce the carbon footprint. So I think by 2050, I think as long as we stick by the policies of the outcomes of your COP26s, then therefore we stand a chance of governments creating a top-down environment, putting pressure on us, the consumers, to think a little bit more about reducing carbon and using more carbon friendly materials. So 2050 is we're gonna see huge megacities around the planet, a lot more people gravitating towards them, but we have to think more smart in how we build these megacities. Okay, that's a, a great vision. Thanks very much, Nick. It's been completely illuminating. Thanks for your time today. Oh, thank you, Caroline.
It was great having Nick on the podcast and discovering how timber can be used in construction to reduce the industry's carbon footprint. It seems to make great sense to use a resource that not only provides an aesthetically attractive building, but can be sustainably sourced. You can find links to Nick and the organisations he mentions on my podcast page at www.theowlhoot.com forward slash podcast. I'd like to thank Andy Shaw for audio editing, Jeremy Jones for the music and to you for listening. If you want to hear more stories of people doing great things that positively impact our environment, then please do subscribe through your podcast app. There are now seven other episodes in this series covering topics such as climate change, ecosystem restoration and community action. So do take a look if you've missed them. Finally, if you have a moment, then please do rate and review the podcast. It would be a great help. Thanks. Until next time. Bye for now.